Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, quote, This is a sickness that cannot be allowed to continue. Please report any sightings so we can quickly extinguish, close quote. Donald Trump's disturbing September 5th tweet paired with his claim that, quote, teaching this horrible doctrine to our children is a form of child abuse in the truest sense of those words, close quote. What is the sickness, the doctrine that Trump says is, quote, being deployed to rip apart friends, neighbors, and families, close quote? It's critical race theory, or really any of a whole group of interrelated social justice ideas, like structural racism, implicit bias, or privilege, tools for talking about and addressing persistent inequities in U.S. society. Trump's September executive order on combating race and sex stereotyping banned any training addressing racial or gender diversity for federal employees, government contractors, and the U.S. military. The effects were immediate and chilling, not just the end of workplace diversity trainings, but academics forced to cancel lectures, research projects suspended, curricula scrubbed for fear of running afoul of what's being called the equity gag order. And yet this obviously suppressive effort has been largely shrugged off by media who ought to be sounding the alarm. Oh, McCarthyism, how can we miss you if you won't go away? Resisting the effort to silence necessary conversations about racism is Kimberly Crenshaw, a pioneer in critical race theory. She's a professor of law at UCLA and Columbia Law Schools and executive director of the African American Policy Forum and the Center for Intersectionality and Social Policy Studies. We'll talk with her about Trump's order and the Truth Be Told campaign that's pushing back on it and the ideas behind it. That's coming up, but first we'll take a quick look back at some recent press. As President-elect Joe Biden begins to assemble his cabinet and advisory team, those who care about corporate influence in politics are raising concerns. But as Julie Holler writes for FAIR.org, establishment outlets like the New York Times silo their stories on the revolving door between government and corporate America, so they rarely inform broader coverage. The Times' Kenneth Vogel and Eric Lipton reported in depth, for instance, on links between Biden picks, including Antony Blinken, tapped for Secretary of State, and Transition Advisor Jennifer Psaki, and the D.C. consulting firm West Exec Advisors and investment fund Pine Island Capital Partners. They explain how such outfits let officials use their government experience and access to help big corporations and themselves when out of office, and then then when they cycle back into office, quote, bring with them questions about whether they might favor or give special access to the companies they had worked with in the private sector, close quote. But the Times' big profile on Blinken, while it said that his extensive foreign policy credentials are expected to help calm American diplomats and global leaders alike, and that he plays in a band, said nothing about his role at West Exec. And the piece reporting Biden's all-female communication staff with Saki as press secretary noted that she sees her job as trying to rebuild trust of the American people. But nothing about her West exec ties, which the previous day's paper had said posed an ethics test, much less how those ties might impact that trust-building mission. 
It's good that the Times has reporters tasked with shedding light on corporate influence. Trouble is, they seem to think that absolves them of the obligation to consider it anywhere else. It's a neat trick. The paper can point to its prize-winning reporting on corporate influence as evidence of independence, while leaving all but the most avid readers largely oblivious to the entanglements of so many government officials. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. On September 4th, the director of the Office of Management and Budget sent a memo relaying orders from Donald Trump that federal agencies stop funding anti-racism trainings or any training involving critical race theory or mentioning white privilege. His evidence source for the attack was conservative activist Christopher Rufo. On September 17th, Trump declared, quote, Critical race theory, the 1619 Project, and the crusade against American history is toxic propaganda, ideological poison that, if not removed, will dissolve the civic bonds that tie us together. It will destroy our country, close quote. And he talked about creating a 1776 commission to promote patriotic education. And on September 22nd, the White House released the Executive Order on Combating Race and Sex Stereotyping, which, while not naming CRT specifically, expanded the ban on, quote, training that promotes race or sex stereotyping or scapegoating, close quote, to the U.S. military, government contractors and their employees, and other federal grantees. It's come to be known as the Equity Gag Order by the civil rights groups that leapt to resist it, But for an obvious assault on free speech and freedom of thought, it hasn't garnered the attention one would hope for. Kimberly Crenshaw is a pioneer of critical race theory. She's a law professor at UCLA and Columbia Law Schools, executive director of the African American Policy Forum, where I am a board member, and the Center for Intersectionality and Social Policy Studies, as well as the host of the podcast, Intersectionality Matters. She joins us now by phone from California. Welcome back to Counterspin, Kimberly Crenshaw. Always a pleasure, Janine. Thanks for having me. Well, so the White House issues these directives and then this executive order, and people might not know about it because it's not got the attention it deserved, but it wasn't just hateful hot air. There were immediate actual repercussions and and across a range of spheres, right? Yeah, uh, absolutely. And you know, what what is striking about the reaction, Janine, is that people who, you know, are, are fair-minded, social justice-oriented, did understand a version of the threat. Uh, recall the debate in, in which President Trump refused to denounce the, the Proud Boys. He right. did the whole, you know, stand-by signaling. And folks got that. They understood that that was a real danger to the republic. They understood that this was a pushback against uh, civil rights and the the wider, broader commitments to social justice. But at that very same time, he had issued an order, and the order effectively incorporated into the federal bureaucracy precisely the ideology 
that groups like the Proud Boys were organized to advance. It's this idea that attention to racial and gender justice was actually uh, discriminatory against white people and against men. The idea that really embracing the 14th Amendment and enacting what is necessary to ensure equal opportunity instead takes away opportunity and privilege that they see as being their right to hold on to. So people get the attacks when they are in the streets, but when they are in the discourse, when they're in our norms, when it is about the ideologies of equity and justice, those kind of attacks don't seem to really garner the same amount of attention. And I think it's partly because people don't imagine materially what they do. So part of our campaign is to try to give people a picture of materially what they do. We put out just a call to uh, folks who experience the consequences of this gag order to tell us what happened. And within less than 10 days, we got more than 300 stories about talks being canceled, about research projects being halted, about training at the CDC that was about structural racism, contributing to some of the horrific outcomes, disparate outcomes from COVID also being canceled. So this is really having a significant impact, but people just seem to be unaware of it. Yeah. On December 2nd, the Policy Forum's webinar series Under the Blacklight focused on this campaign that you're talking about, which is called Truth Be Told and and the the gag order. And you heard folks saying, you know, like um, Lisa Rice from the National Fair Housing Alliance saying that she can't talk about residential segregation and racial disparities in homeownership, you know, um, Mm -hmm. when she's trying to talk about ending housing discrimination. But you've you've started to talk about the roots of this. Like so many things, Mm -hmm. Trump didn't create this. Right. But, you know, Trump may be sui generis. He's his own person, but he he can't pull on strings that aren't there. And there are historical roots to precisely this type of attack that you're talking about, anti-racism is itself racist. Mm-hmm. This is this is mm-hmm. there's context there, right? Yeah, this is this is a classic, you know, this mm-hmm. is a page out of the book of how to suppress efforts to transform the status quo by attacking the very idea that there's a problem with the status quo and those who are raising the problem are the problem. So we can go back to COINTELPRO, for example. COINTELPRO was a government FBI uh, program that ran from 1956 to 1971. And the whole point of the COINTELPRO program was to expose, disrupt, misdirect, discredit, and otherwise neutralize the activities of civil rights groups. Why? Because the basic demands for equity, for justice, the demands to dismantle segregation were framed as un-American. 
right? The inverse of that, of course, is that segregation is American. This status quo has to be defended by all means, even to the point of destroying individuals and and organizations. COINTELPRO was the frame under which Martin Luther King was surveilled. There were efforts to destroy his character and his marriage, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. So we have seen this in our history of the civil rights movement, but, you know, there are even more recent things. Black Lives Matter has been framed by the FBI as identity extremism, Uh, and there's been a program that is called the Iron Fist from 2019. And the idea, again, is to monitor the threat posed by the very ideas that generated all of the protests first that we saw going all the way back to 2016, but also the recent reckoning. This is all seen by a particular cohort as deeply threatening to the American status quo, and things that are seen as threatening then become criminalized or demonized. And so we see this same thing that we've seen happening over and over and over, and you know, we could go all the way back to slavery right. when just the right to read was seen as being a danger if black people and slaves were allowed to understand and articulate their demands for freedom. So there's nothing new here. The only thing that I think is particularly damaging in this moment is the belief that this is just part of the craziness of Trump, and it'll go away when he goes away. People are unaware of the lasting damage that this has caused, and the fact that rescinding the order is not enough. More is going to have to be done to address the damage and to ensure that race and gender justice is grounded in, in a more steady foundation than it has been to this time. Well, you mentioned COINTELPRO and part of the order, you know, was this snitch line where folks were supposed to report trainings that were in violation of the executive order. And, you know, that Can was... You imagine? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and of course, that supposedly was, you know, bad enough aimed at federal employees. But then, hey, a college student sends their teacher the executive order in order to protest course material that included sections on on critical race theory and intersectionality, you know, to say, essentially, I've got backing in saying, I don't want to hear these words. I don't want to learn this. I don't want to talk about this. You know, I mean, we've... And that's exactly what they want. I mean, that's exactly why people who are only seeing this as a limited order that only applies to government employees are sadly, tragically missing the boat. The whole point of this order is to put the weight of the federal government behind the idea of anti-anti-racism. The whole idea is to allow threats of the loss of federal funding to drive the suppression of these ideas, to literally put the gag in the mouths of teachers and researchers and opinion leaders and corporate executives and military officials 
all those people who say we have a consistent and ongoing challenge to create the real conditions of equality and opportunity, all those who would look at our systems and our society and say there's still work to be done, this gag order is basically saying you only can do that at your peril in the future. And this is why it was so shocking. I mean, you, you, you rightly pointed out the students who object to material around critical race theory, intersectionality, implicit bias, but entire universities have decided to withdraw their equity training. And then most recently, a few weeks ago, this was after the election, Stanford University issued a memo saying that to be in compliance with this executive order, it cannot be said that Stanford University is a place where systemic racism Exists. It's basically we're just going to declare mm-hmm. that this is a racism-free zone because this executive order says so, and so we're going to go along with it. So first of all, it was overcompliance. Right. It never quite said that. But here's the thing, Janine. Stanford University is a site in which scholars have produced much of this material and these frameworks that the order is trying to gag. Things like implicit bias, things like racism that plays out in, in making artificial intelligence. So here's an institution that's producing some of these ideas that now thinks that it cannot use these very ideas in its own institution. That's how dangerous this moment is. Well, you know, I saw... A serious amount of institutional defense of critical race theory and of diversity training and of teaching history critically. Civil rights groups, of course, the American Libraries Association, the American Association of Museums, corporate groups, as you say, stepping up to say this is backward. But it feels then that like to people like, as you've sort of said, well, this is just sort of dead enders, desperately flailing. Therefore, it's probably not really dangerous. But we aren't really trying to just go back to the status quo ante. You know, we aren't trying to say, oh, could we have permission to say the word racism again? You know, um, <laughs> what, what is the more robust vision that speaks back to this effort to silence and to say, and, and, and I did want to pick up just one thing that uh, in terms of the argument, because folks may remember it from the media as well. I'm remembering James Pinkerton back in 1995, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. you remember mm-hmm. this, saying, uh, quote, those who have emphasized racial categories at the expense of colorblindness must bear some responsibility for legitimizing the racially categorizing thinking that results. One such result is the bell curve, close quote. Mm-hmm. In other words, that's mm-hmm. the intellectual argument that you're talking about, arguing that black people and other people of color are systematically discriminated against is the same as saying they're inferior, you know, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so that's kind of the intellectual history. But there is a is a counter vision that's much bigger than just saying that that's wrong. Yep, absolutely. And, you know, Janine, one of the most telling aspects of this order is how ideas that at one point may not rise to the level of 
bureaucratic endorsement still st- they hang around yeah they're always available for precisely the moment to be deployed so this idea that the first person to say this is racist is the racist mm-hmm. this idea that any critique of the racial contours of the status quo is itself a racist idea this has been a sort of far right set of of arguments that just has kind of been on a lazy Susan. It's just been you know, around. circulating around until, you know, there's a moment like now when there's been a racial reckoning, you know, across the country. People are rising up. People are demanding material, demanding ways of thinking about why do we still have to worry about police killing someone in an agonizing eight-minute death? Why do we still have to worry about a black man, you know, running through a neighborhood and being shot by two white vigilantes? Why do black women still have to worry about going to sleep at night and maybe never waking up because of the police having a no-knock raid in their home? I mean, all of these things that people are asking, the answers to these are largely the kinds of ideas that are packed into these ideas about structural and systemic bias, about implicit racism, about intersectionality. These, These are all ideas that have been packaged together under the frame of critical race theory. It's based basically the idea that we still have problems with structural racism and we don't get away from those problems by not talking about it, by having the see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil approach. That is not a reasonable approach to any social problem we care desperately about. So when we think about what this order means, it means, yes, we have to rescind it, but more has to happen. We've got to go beyond that position that to not speak about racism is to be anti-racist. That cannot be the final inference from this moment. So one of the things that the Truth Be Told campaign is advocating for is we need to assess the damage that has been done from this short period of time when anti-racism has been framed as racism and use that as a way of understanding where we need to seek deep deeper roots into the very foundation of our equal opportunity practice. So we know now that the commitments were not as robust and the understanding of what needed to happen for people to be able to read and and, and, and see in, in a fully legible fashion how racial power was playing out across all of our institutions. So that is, you know, the upshot. You know, when you've gone through a storm and your house has, you know, lost the couple of rooms, it tells you, okay, when we rebuild this, we've got to rebuild this better. So we're hoping that the Biden-Harris administration applies the Build Back Better uh, to racial justice and to gender justice, and, and hopefully that starts by embracing Truth Be Told. Well, let me just ask you finally about bringing attention to it. You know, I mean, media did not do what they should have. There were some good stories, particularly by USA Today's Jessica Gunn. But other than that, I I did see stories that just kind of, as I would say, narrated the nightmare. You know, they use this kind of zombie neutral voice that has the effect of normalizing and legitimizing things like, and if folks don't know this, just the flavor, Donald Trump has said, Teaching this horrible doctrine to our children is a form of child abuse in the truest sense of those words. That's what we're dealing with here. But I'm concerned that media's 
tendency to triangulate is going to mean that, you know, we have a problem with racism and we don't have a problem with racism are both going to be seen as equally valid points of view, you know, that have to be mm-hmm. entertained. Mm-hmm. I, you know, but, but generally, I guess what I'm saying is it, it bothers me a lot that academic media, that legal media, that, that compliance specialty media, that librarians were talking about this. But the free speech crowd... And this is kind of where we started. Didn't seem to get it. Doesn't seem to get it. And, you know, Janine, it reminds me so much of a report that FAIR did uh, many years ago on affirmative action uh, in which the reporting was basically, you know, on the one hand, on the other hand, and, and no significant analysis of the way that affirmative action was actually being framed. You know, even calling it preferential treatment was weighing in on it in a way that misshaped and distorted what these policies actually do and what the justifications for them have been. And that I think we're seeing replay here because the question about what is racial injustice, because there's so little engagement about built-in racial biases in our so-called neutral institutional practices, because they're is such limited conversation about that in the mainstream media, this thing goes right into that machine and it kicks out the same thing. So even though there are causes of alarm because of the connection between this and the proud boy, fine people on in white nationalist comments, yeah. even though this is the ideology of that, our media just didn't seem to be able to report it. I'll just raise even this issue. Where have the free speech people been? Where are the people who are so concerned about cancel culture? Where are the people who are saying the person who believes that black people have fewer brain cells than white people, they should be able to come on campus. But those who are saying and framing what these ideologies do, they don't have the same platform to uh, basically fight back. So, you know, in, in some ways, I feel very much like we are potentially in that period after the first Reconstruction, when people wanted race to go away. Uh, They wanted the whole fight to go away. And what came out of that was an agreement between white folk, white folk in the South and white folk in the North, that this was no longer going to be a priority. They were just going to step away from it and concede this issue uh, effectively to the redeemers. If we're not very, very careful, if we don't push our allies and demand that our media do better in reporting on this, If we don't really come together and lift up some of the truths that this order is trying to silence, then we may be heading in a very seriously flawed and problematic direction about suppression of, frankly, uh, what the challenge of equality really is in our society. We've been speaking with Professor Kimberly Crenshaw. The African-American Policy Forum is online at aapf.org. That's where you can find out more about the Truth Be Told campaign, the Under the Black Light webinar series, and the Intersectionality Matters podcast. Thank you so much, Kimberly Crenshaw, for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thanks for having me, Janine.
And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the National Media Watch Group based in New York. If you missed part of today's show or you'd like to hear previous shows, you can find shows and transcripts on our website, FAIR.org. The website's also the place to sign up for FAIR's newsletter extra or to show support for the show if you're so inclined. The show is engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thank you for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.